Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Perhaps at no single moment in modern time have we been more self-aware about the human body and human anatomy than at this moment. I suspect that all of you listening right now have a new understanding of how viruses work, how RNA duplicates, how genetic material plays a role in how disease evolves. Therefore, it becomes the perfect time to zoom out from that personal insight to look at the broad evolutionary perspective of how we got here to this time and this place. How did those vulnerable lungs and respiratory systems evolve? And what does that evolution tell us about life now, our collective future, and our own evolutionary prospects? And most of all, in this age of cutting-edge biological and genetic science, what control do we have over any of this? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Neil Shubin. He is the Robert R. Bensley Professor of Organismal Biology and Anatomy at the University of Chicago. He is provost of the Field Museum of Natural History, a graduate of Columbia and Harvard, and the author of the bestsellers, Your Inner Fish and the Universe Within. It is my pleasure to welcome Neil Shubin to the program to talk about his latest work, Some Assembly Required, Decoding Four Billion Years of Life, from ancient fossils to DNA. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Wow, it's great to be here. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things that you talk about is kind of a, a, a naive, and, and maybe that's the wrong word, but a simplistic view of, evo- of the mechanics of evolution that we have that really doesn't take into account some of the complexity of it. Talk a little bit about that aspect first. Yeah, there's an amazing, beautiful complexity, actually, to evolution that is surprising, and it runs counter to sort of our sort of quick and quick uh, popular view of it, and that is that, you know, so much of evolution, and this should be obvious, it's just like change in general, but it, we have to really underscore it, so much of change is, involves not necessarily the origin of new stuff, new genes and new organs, well, some of it is, but a lot of it isn't. Really, what a lot of evolution is, it's repurposing organs, repurposing genes that already exist. So evolution was kind of like my, 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 my old grandmother who, you know, wouldn't buy new stuff. She would just repurpose everything over and over and over again. And invention happens by repurposing, by modifying things that exist. And that is the fundamental of evolution. And the thing about it is that that insight appears obvious in some sense, but it takes you to some incredible places. And it takes you places that you see in the fossil record as surprising. Likewise, when we start to probe uh, genomes and DNA and RNA and so forth. How much has DNA helped us understand this? How much has it really clarified and sharpened our understanding of what you're talking about? Yeah, it's really remarkable. We've, in the past several decades, we've had the Human Genome Project. We had the Corn Genome Project, the Rice Genome Project. We've had thousands upon thousands of genome projects, and we can now sequence genomes in an afternoon for a relatively small amount of money. So what we now have are the genomes of many different critters, from microbes to viruses to fish to people, and we can ask the question, Okay, what makes them similar? What makes them different? What makes them tick? I mean, we can really get into there and, you know, look under the hood in a very meaningful way. Well, we're finding all kinds of surprises. Let me just do a few. You know, the first is that our genome, uh, you know, our DNA is basically a six-foot-long strand that is just 
packed, rolled in upon itself and packed in to each of the four trillion cells of our body. So all four trillion cells of our body have DNA inside them, uh, basically a six foot long strand that's been packed inside there. That's pretty remarkable. Honestly, if you were to take all the DNA in our bodies and lay it end to end, you know, all four trillion cells, each of those six feet would take you almost to Pluto. That's how much we have inside of us. But when we see that, what we start to find is history, deep history inside there. We can begin to ask the question, what makes a human different from a chimpanzee at the, the level of genome? Because we can compare them. What makes a human different from a fish? We can ask this at different levels. And some of the answers are very, very surprising. You know, one is that, you know, we are beginning to see the genes that are turned on and off as we go from a single cell, you know, a fertilized egg, which is where it all began for each of us, to uh, uh, an adult with four trillion cells, we can begin to see the DNA recipe that builds body, builds a body as we go from egg to adult in development. And when we do that, we begin to see that many of the genes that are active in making our own bodies are present in other critters. They're present in, you know, in, in, in primates, they're present in you know, other mammals, they're present in reptiles, all the way to flies. Really remarkable, the toolkit that builds our bodies. We could see versions of it in other creatures. And we can begin to ask the question is, how does the toolkit that builds the body of a, of a fish, how's that different from the toolkit that builds the body of, say, a mammal or you know, a human being? And that's the level of resolution that we can begin to apply to this. Furthermore, we can also begin to manipulate those genes. We can, you know, we can turn them on and off using new, new technologies. So this is a, you know, and, and by the way, as we follow the news, it's going to be increasingly relevant are the tools we use to understand DNA and RNA, which are so useful in understanding, you know, why we look the way we do are also, you know, of critical importance now as we begin to understand and try to stop the spread of coronavirus. And to put a finer point on that, you talk about, for example, the lungs, which existed in certain species of fish, but changed over time and adapted somewhat as their ancestors became land-based, land-dwelling. That's correct. I mean, so if you look at the, the, you know, fish, it turns out lungs are primitive. <laughs> People don't realize that. But fish actually evolved lungs years, I mean, tens of millions before animals took their first steps on land. That's pretty remarkable. And what fish were dealing with at the time, and they still do to some extent, there are many fish with lungs, um, they deal with the changes in oxygen content, oxygen concentration of the water they live in. They have both lungs and gills, but when oxygen, you know, content, concentration of water goes low, they'll use their lungs and breathe air rather than use their gills. So they have this sort of dual mechanism. Well, it turns out fish were living with this dual mechanism for tens of millions of years before animals took the first steps on land. So that when animals ended up taking their first steps on land, they didn't really have to invent a whole lot of new stuff. They, these fish already had lungs. These fish already had um, elbows and wrists and fins that could walk. You know, so they basically they had to repurpose what already existed. So when most people think about evolutionary change, they think of all this new stuff that has to come about for a big evolutionary change to happen. And that's manifestly not the case. Usually what you have is the all these structures exist being used for different purposes and then just get repurposed. And we see that at the level of organs, but importantly, with all these genome projects, we see it at the level of DNA, how genes evolve for one reason, but then they're repurposed and used for others across the body and during evolution. What does it tell us about certain points if there are such kind of inflection points when some of this could have gone one way or another as, as evolution took its course? Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing to think about, you know, what if stories, what if, you know, an asteroid never hit the planet, 
uh, 65 and change million years ago, you know, what would happen if we didn't have these events? Would we be here? Would our species even be here? Um, you know, in, or would there be other, other animals that would take the niche that we're in? And it's pretty remarkable to think about, you know, the four billion year history of life as a set of events, some of which, you know, you had these sort of random shocks to it that sort of propel it in new directions, which is really remarkable. One thing we witness when we look at the history of the planet, when we look at the history of species, is how our, our own history, that is the deep history of us and our lineage, our branch of the tree of life, is very dependent on changes to the planet. You know, and there have been time over and over again where the planet is undergoing great upheavals because of continents moving or asteroids hitting it or mountains, you know, being built or, you know, oceans rising and falling just by natural processes, um, that those have really been a major trigger for, for changes in the, uh, in the diversity and history of, of living things. And what role has disease played in that? Something that's, I think, on all of our minds today. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So here, let's just, just let's go back to the genome and take a snapshot of it. If you look at our genome, only about 2% of it uh, are our genes, are the part that encodes for proteins, right? So 98% of our genome does not encode for the, you know, for, for the proteins that, that our body, that our cells use. So it's only 2% of it is our genes. What's the other 98%? Well, when we map that, we begin to see about 8% of our genome, about four times our gene number of genes we have, 8% of our genome are ancient viruses that invaded the genomes of our ancestors only to be neutered. So what we have in our genome is a graveyard, if you will, of ancient viruses that once invaded, that were, that were later knocked out by whatever biological, natural biological processes. So we have inside of us this deep repository of ancient viruses that have been neutered. Um, and that's an artifact of history, history of ancient infections. But what gets interesting still is when we look at some of the gene, important genes in our bodies, let's take one that folks in the University of Utah worked on. When um, they looked at a gene that's involved in making memories in our brains, it turns out when they looked at the structure of that gene, it was virtually identical in some way to HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. And it turns out as they traced the history of that gene, the mapping the DNA in different species, what they found is the likely scenario is way back in the distant past, a virus invaded the DNA of our distant ancestors, uh, was then taken over by our ancestors' DNA and repurposed to be a, a gene that functions in memories. Now, think about that for a second. Number one is our genome contains histories of ancient infections, but some of those ancient infections led to new inventions. That is, the genome was able to repurpose the, uh, the viral uh, DNA or RNA and, um, and, um, and make new things. And, you know, we never would have known this kind of things without the great technologies we have at our disposal. You know, the technologies we have to understand DNA, RNA, genetic material, and how it works. What don't we understand? What's still a mystery in this arena? Well, that's what's the fun part for me as a scientist, because it's the mysteries that are, that are wonderful. So we're really good now at sequencing genomes, 
understanding which genes are turned on and off in bodies, understanding how genes interact with one another. What we're not as good at yet is understanding how the interactions of those genes gives rise to different organs, how it actually builds a, a brain, a stomach, a, a lung, and so forth. You know, the actual way they work together. So we have the parts list, and we know how those parts interact, but how the actual nitty-gritty you know, of building an organ you know, and, and, and controlling the behavior of tissues and cells that's still a frontier. We're making a lot of progress on that, but uh, you know, stay tuned because the next five to ten years will be uh, uh, will be will be a, a huge time of discovery in that arena. And has the pace of evolution always been consistent, or have they been periods that have been more aggressive and others that have been more restrained? Oh yeah, there are periods of great upheaval. And uh, there are periods of very little change, honestly. So, for instance, you know, if you look at rocks a little over 250 million years old around the world, it turns out there was one of the largest extinction events in the history of life. Almost all species went, ex- all, you know, almost all species nearly went extinct. You know, it's called the Permo-Triassic extinction. That was a great cataclysm in the history of life, you know, where life almost, you know, some people say life almost disappeared at that moment in time. Um, you know, so there are those cataclysms. But also it helps to think about, you know, the history of the planet. You know, the planet's about over four and a half billion years old. You know, and we think about, you know, the earliest life is a little over, you know, say three and a half billion years old. Most of the history of our planet, most of the history of life on our planet is the history of single-celled microbes. Almost two billion years, there were no creatures with bodies, all single-celled microbes moving around. And it's really not until about you know, 600 or so million years ago where you start to see creatures with bodies, with many cells making those bodies. So virtually all the history of you know, creatures with bodies is confined to the last, say, 600 million years. The first three and a half billion years of the history of the planet is the history of, 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 of single-celled critters. You know, so when you think about it that way, yeah, there's really there's been an acceleration because once you get you know, multicellular, once you get creatures with lots of cells making their bodies, then all of a sudden you start to find worms and flies and fish and people, things like that. And we're relative, you know, what's humbling is we're relative newcomers to the planet. Our species have not been here all that long, you know, and so. I was saying that the overlay to that, the question is what changes now that we have more control over it, that we're, we're able to somehow influence it? What does that lead us to? Where does that lead us? Well, so, you know, for, for obviously, you know, what it leads us to is therapies that are really critical because, you know, obviously, you know, h- humans are living longer and we need to divine, you know, and, you know, we have, we face new problems because of that cancers, neurodegenerative diseases and things like that. The more we can marshal the genome and understand our bodies, the more we'll be able to treat those things. Honestly, uh, the more we understand our relationship to microbes, uh, the more we understand, you know, how, what happened, how to treat when it gets out of balance, like what we're dealing with now with coronavirus, honestly, the, the tools of molecular biology that are helping us probe our own DNA and RNA are the tools that are being applied to coronavirus and other viruses and emerging threats uh, that, uh, that we need to marshal. But honestly, you know, there are some great game-changing technologies that have come about in the past, you know, past eight, ten years. Uh, genome editing, we're able to get in there and edit DNA. You know, we're able to turn genes on and off. We're able to modify genes of different species in many ways. It's a brave new world in a lot of ways at the level of molecules. And will it enable us to change evolution, essentially? Well, we're already doing a pretty good job of that by changes to the planet 
and by our technologies, our medicines, our devices, our you know socioeconomic structures, and so forth, we're already you know impacting our own evolution. If you think about our own genome, it already has impacts of human technology. That's only going to increase over time. Neil Shubin, his book is Some Assembly Required: Decoding Four Billion Years of Life from Ancient Fossils to DNA. Neil, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.